Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is happening, gang? We are jacked to be focused on this topic today. This is going to be one, I know I say this a lot, but this is truly one that I've wanted to do ever since we put the podcast together. Today's episode, we take our second step at looking at labor issues in the NFL. We look at the 1987 player strike and the replacement players. And this is one of the rare opportunities. I think a lot of times we've heard players' perspectives on it, coaches' perspectives on it, management perspective owners, but I don't think we've ever really had a GM talk about what it was like to lead an organization in 1987 from, do you want replacement players? How do you approach these games? How do you approach roster building? How What, what are the long-term ramifications of how this could affect your franchise if there was discourse in the locker room as a result of hard feelings? You had a league that was still very much in turmoil from everything that we talked about on the 82 show, which bubbled up into this very, very unique time in the NFL. So sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy Bill's unique perspective on this crazy, crazy time in the NFL. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is the 1987 NFL Player Strike. And we are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. And I got to tell you, this is the episode I've been as excited about as any episode we have done thus far. Uh, Today's episode, we are going to dive deep into the 1987 NFL strike and all the permutations of what that means. Uh Guys, are you as excited about talking about 1987 as I am? Indeed. One of my one of my absolute favorite years. Yeah, no, it was a good year. I mean, it was it was a very dominant year for me. I was eight. Uh, I was being bullied mercifully at school, and you know, thank God for the Redskins, and we got a parade. So it was a win win all the way around. Wait, I have to pause here to say, Bill Scott was eight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was a gentle eight years old. Yeah, it was a formative time. You know, it was, uh, that's one of the best, best memories of my life is going to weird hotels to buy NFL merchandise that I'm sure was unlicensed as the Redskins would win the Super Bowl that year. But very cool. All right. Well, without further ado, let's dive into the pod today. On the glossary, kind of two key points we want to set up for you guys today. The first one is labor union decertification. What in God's name does that mean, Rick? It refers to a process pursuant to the rules and regulations of the National Labor Relations Board which, of course, is a federal entity that oversees labor management relations in the U.S. And those rules and regs get specifically grant to a group of workers who are then currently represented by a union the right to trigger and hold an election where the workers will vote whether or not they want to continue to be represented by that union. If the majority vote against the existing union, that union is out and no longer has any legal authority to bargain or work on behalf of the employees. What's so unusual about this case is that that normally transpires 
when the workers are very dissatisfied with the existing union. Either they see the union as corrupt or incompetent uh, or out of touch or uncaring. For whatever reason, they feel the union is not serving their best interests. But in this case, instead of a bottom-up kind of a thing, this was the leadership of the union that came up with the idea to have the, the players take a vote and vote them out. It is what the union itself wanted for an outcome. Why they do that, we'll talk about later in the show. Hey, well, that that's the Cliff Notes version that I needed, uh, and I'll probably get a hard C on the test. But I think kind of paired to that, and no discussion about 1987 can happen without talking about this key two words, replacement players. What are they, and why did it happen? Well, replacement players are, in, in this context, are players who are non-union members who are willing to cross a union picket line and go to work at a individually negotiated wage for an employer who wishes to challenge a union's ability to shut them down during a strike. Uh, in the labor management business, they're known by one word, scabs. And um, that's what took place here in the, in the National Football League in 1987. Uh, Donlan and Culverhouse largely pushed the idea that we should no longer accept a strike from the union, especially a strike that interrupted the regular season, which the union was planning to do. They were going to go out after two or three games, uh, just exactly as they had done in previous years, try to disrupt the season, try to disrupt the networks, try to uh, trigger the clawback mechanisms in the network TV contracts with the league and force the league to grant them some form of free agency. And free agency, make no mistake about it, was the key to the whole thing. Free agency, once again, from a management standpoint, rears its ugly head. And this time, it's a fire-breathing dragon in the form of the leader of the uh, uh, Players Association, Gene Upshaw. So... Uh, management, Donlan, Culverhouse decide that they are going to field replacement players. Um, by the way, they were backed by the vast majority of owners. They were going to have a replacement season uh, that counted in the regular season standings. Each team had to field a replacement team. And those games were going to count. And uh, if it lasted all season long and two replacement players made it to uh, teams made it to the Super Bowl, so be it. Yeah, what a what a terrible thing that would have been. All right, well, you hit on it. So Bill has hit one of our uh, key characters for today. So we got three for today in the show who will be crucial to kind of our story as we move through the uh, 87 strikes. So number one would be Gene Upshaw. Who was Gene Upshaw and how did he come to power inside the NFLPA, Rick? So uh, Gene Upshaw, first of all, uh, was one of the truly great offensive linemen of all time, uh, playing for uh, Al Davis and the, the Oakland Raiders. Um, Gene was uh, a huge guy, but 
but not built like an offensive lineman usually is. He was built like a big running back. I mean, he the guy was cut. He was huge. He was intimidating. He had a booming uh, basso profundo voice. Uh, to, to sort of tell you what it was like, the first time I met Gene Upshaw was when Ed Garvey, who was his predecessor, uh, was trying to organize something called uh, Professional Athletes International, which was going to be like an AFL-CIO of sports. And he invited people from the unions and the other associations of players to this meeting. Uh, and I was there representing the Association of Tennis Professionals. And we're sitting around the table, and there were guys from baseball and, and hockey and, uh, and the, the jockey guild. And Ed's explaining why this all makes sense. And in another show, we can talk about what he's really trying to do. Uh, but then he starts calling on us to, around the table to react. Well, I happened to be the second person that Ed called on. And I said, you know, Ed, this, this all really sounds great. Uh, but, you know, uh, we are independent contractors in, in the tennis business. We don't even have owners. Uh, and a lot of this stuff just doesn't apply to us. And as I said, that Gene, who's sitting next to Ed, Gene was at that point the player vice president of the, of the union, says, screw him, except he didn't say screw. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Ed says, Gene, take it easy. He's just trying to, to explain it to us. But uh, believe me, I did not want to really it's a continue, Rick, and I was so intimidated. It was very hard. To, to do that. So Gene was, uh, I, I think, one of the most impressive uh, and uh, people I, I, I ever met. And uh, looking ahead, when, when Gene passed away, I was shocked because, and Bill, you may or may not agree with this, I felt that if I had ever known anybody who was going to be immortal, it was going to be Gene Upshaw. Well, his passing was certainly was shocking. He was a larger than life character in every respect, a brilliant man and a brilliant leader uh, for the union and a uh, the, the most um, loyal partner, as it turned out, because of his relationship with Paul Tagliabue, uh, who succeeded Pete Rosell as commissioner, uh, but uh, the most uh, difficult adversary that the NFL ever had during their years of uh, dealing with the union. Very true. So, Bill, you kind of hit on this. What was Paul Tagliabue's kind of role at this point uh, in the league, and what would what role would he play in the in the nineteen eighty seven strike? Well, he was the outside counsel uh, for the league, working for Covington and Burling, the Washington law firm that had handled the league's business for a long period of time. Um, he was uh, a trusted if unknown, uh, ally of, Ro of Roselle and, and, uh, and, and a person that Roselle trusted implicitly. And he was involved for 20 years as the outside counsel, handling everything from Joe Namath's divesting of Bachelors Three, uh, his bar in New York that had mob connections, um, up to and including uh, things like uh, player limit, health and safety issues, what have you. Uh, if it was important and it crossed Pete Rosell's desk, Paul Tagliabue knew about it. And uh, at the time, the, the USFL sued the NFL. Uh, 
there was a league meeting. It was my first as a general manager. And a distinguished attorney named Bob Fisk, who was representing the NFL in the trial against the USFL, stood up and counseled the owners to settle the trial. Um, That was met with some terrific verbal bombs from certain owners, among whom were my boss, Ralph Wilson, the owner of the Buffalo Bills. And uh, Fisk came right back and made a strong argument that it was in the league's best interest to settle, admit a few franchises from the USFL, pay the others to go away, and move on. Which, by the way, was what happened with the AAFC back in 1949. Fisk pointed that out. And um, soon thereafter, a very tall 6'5", distinguished gentleman stood up, introduced himself to those that didn't know him as Paul Tagliabue, outside counsel for the league. He made about a 10-minute presentation uh, saying why we should not settle, uh, that the the law was on our side, the New York tabloids were not, but that didn't mean anything in a court of law, and that the... uh, NFL should not settle, we would win, and that would mean the demise of the USFL. Paul Tagliabue's argument, as it, as it did for many years to come, carried the day. Uh, we went to trial. Um, the USFL won a Pyrrhic victory because we were found guilty of being a monopoly, monopoly but the USFL got $3 in damages and folded up the next day. Interestingly enough, uh, in the history, interest of history, one of the leaders of the USFL uh, strike, uh, excuse me, uh, trial and lawsuit strategy was the present present occupant of the White House. Very true. How does that work when you do a three dollar lawsuit like that? Do you actually do they actually pay? Uh, yes, uh, the three dollar check was cut and signed by Pete Rozelle, and I forget to whom it was sent. Uh, but it actually exists, I believe, in the archives at the Pro Football Hall of Fame today. Yeah, that's got to be one of the greatest uh, things to hang on a wall somewhere in the history of football. Very cool. All right, well, no story of the 1987 strike could be complete without hitting this one other name. Uh, very important from the the owner and management perspective, Uh a lot of people know him more from his, you know, talent evaluation, those kinds of things. But who was Tech Schramm and what role would he play in, in this situation in 87? Tech Schramm was the uh, president of the Dallas Cowboys, the chairman of the competition committee. He had hired Pete Rozelle as a functionary when Tex was the president of the Los Angeles Rams way back in the uh, – early, uh, late 40s and 50s. Pete eventually uh, became the general manager of the Rams when Tex went on to head CBS Sports. Uh, Of course, we all know Pete Rozelle as perhaps the most famous commissioner in the history of sports. Um, But Tex was his mentor. Um, And so Tex was the power in the league for virtually all the years he ran the Dallas Cowboys. He was best known for making uh, Dallas, quote, America's team, close quote. His marketing efforts uh, and his marketing genius uh, was self-evident. 
but he was also uh, as powerful a football man as there was perhaps in the history of the National Football League because he had a direct line to Pete Rozelle, who trusted him implicitly. So uh, from the time that uh, Culverhouse took over the management council, um, the de facto um, person advising Pete Rozelle on all matters NFL was Tex Schramm. And Tex was basically uh, a hardliner when it came to the union. Uh, not one quite as bad, perhaps, as Donlin or Culverhouse, but nonetheless uh, a hardliner. Right. So to, to set the stage for you guys, on the, in, for 87, on one side we have Gene Upshaw on the Players Union, on the other side the, the, the sort of two-headed monster of Hugh Culverhouse and Jack Donlin, and then obviously the influence of Tex Schramm, I think. But in Buffalo, they've been pining for it and yearning for it, so let's give it to them. Uh, where were Spill Polian come 1986-87? Well, in 1986, I had been named general manager of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, I was completely unknown. Uh, there's a, a term for an unknown member of parliament in, in, in Britain. It's called a backbencher. I was beyond the backbencher. I was in the closet uh, somewhere, uh, unknown to the general public completely. Um <laughs> I'd been uh, an advanced scout with the Kansas City Chiefs, a, a personnel director in the Canadian Football League, a personnel director and then later GM of the Chicago Blitz of the USFL, had come to Buffalo as the pro personnel director. Uh, and, and then uh, after uh, Terry Bledsoe, the previous general manager, had had a tremendously debilitating heart uh, attack and and was forced to leave the business uh, out of the blue, uh, both for me and for the general public. Mr. Wilson chose to name me general manager, so I introduced myself at the opening press conference as Bill Who, and one of the local commentators on television said, um, "That's he's aptly named. We have no idea who he is." Um, so the. Uh, uh, I now now take over a team that had gone two and fourteen for two consecutive years, and had hit hit bottom. Uh, actually, uh, because of the blizzard of '77, and poor, which was epic, and poor performance by the Bills for a long period of time, uh, Buffalo had become the butt of jokes, and the Bills had become the butt of jokes uh, on Johnny Carson and what have you. It, it really was a, a punchline. No one in the, no player in the NFL wanted to go come play for the Bills, uh, including the most famous one, Jim Kelly, who walked away and went to the USFL after having been drafted by the Bills. And we had sunk to the bottom. Um, the weeks before I was named general manager, we had drawn, I think, about 26,000 in an 80,000-seat stadium for our last regular season game. Um, the day I was named general manager, I came from the press conference and walked up to the office and the ticket manager was waiting to see me. And he said, well, you've got lots of good news. You're the new GM. I got some bad news for you. I said, what is it? He said, we, has, we have as of today 12,000 season tickets 
in an 80,000 seat stadium. So things were not looking good. In the, in the immortal words of uh, Larry Felser, the lead columnist for the Buffalo Evening News, there was a black cloud hanging over Buffalo and it was led by the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> but that would change soon enough. Uh, how? So Okay, so th- we, we mentioned this earlier, but so with these USFL contracts, so with the USFL ceasing to exist, you guys obviously had the rights to Jim Kelly. How did, how did the NFL absorb these contracts of the key USFL players? How did that work? And then specifically, how did that work uh, with getting Jim Kelly to Buffalo? Well, when the U.S. when the when the NFL effectively won the trial, uh, and it was obvious that the USFL was debating USFL was debating whether to continue, uh, the NFL sent out a strongly worded notice under the signature of Commissioner Roselle, saying that no one should negotiate with any player with whom they had rights until the NFL approved it, at the risk of losing the rights to that player. And no one should negotiate with any free agent from the USFL until the NFL approved it. There was a period of time where everybody was in limbo and agents were calling willy-nilly around the league trying to get their players from the USFL placed. Obviously, uh, everybody in the NFL had been studying both the players they had the rights to and players who were effectively free agents in the NFL because they'd never been drafted. They'd went directly into the USFL. So there was a big cadre of players who were quite good, by the way, who were going to come into the NFL. So we were in limbo. And during that period of time, we had two really big blockbuster bona fide offers for the rights to Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly's agents had made it clear uh, through the press that they were not going to sign in Buffalo again, uh, that they wanted to go we thought with the Oakland Raiders, in fact, it, that was true, and um, and that uh, we'd better trade his rights. So we got two blockbuster offers, and in both cases, Mr. Wilson said, no, we're not going to trade Jim Kelly's rights. We're going to sign him. It's important for the franchise. And I remember saying to him, boss, this is going to be the biggest contract in football history. He said, I know. It's your job to keep it to the minimum biggest contract in football history, but we're signing Jim <laughs> Kelly. So um, the, inter- the, uh, the interregnum ended. Uh, the uh, embargo on negotiating with uh, USFL players began. And obviously, immediately, a hue and cry went up in Buffalo on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, we have to sign Jim Kelly. And so I was able to call the agents and they said, we don't want to go to Buffalo. Uh, We want to be traded to Oakland, uh, but we'll give you the courtesy of a meeting. So I said, okay, thank you very much. So quietly, without any fanfare, I went to New York and met Jim and the agents at a hotel uh, opposite St. Patrick's Cathedral. And Jim told me to my face, that he did not want to play for the Bills. He thought the weather would hurt his arm in the long run. He would much prefer to go to Oakland, where he thought that they had interest in him. It was clear that they did. Um, And um, I said to him, Jim, you need to understand two things. Number one, I'm a new GM. 
and I got four children and my career is over if we trade you uh, and don't sign you. So uh, I'm certainly, for the good of my family, not inclined to do that. Secondly, uh, if you force us to do that, I will trade you to a worse place, and that's Green Bay. And I'll trade you <laughs> for a bag of footballs if necessary. And, 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 and Green Bay at that time was, was as low in the league standings as, as were we. And, of course, the weather was even worse in Green Bay than it was in Buffalo. So Jim kind of laughed but, but kind of took it all in. And then I said, now let me tell you why you ought to come with us because we're going to be champions. And here's why. We drafted Bruce Smith. He's the best defensive end in the league. We've got Andre Reid, a brilliant young receiver. We got Frank Reich, who's going to be your backup. We 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 we've we've got a pretty good offensive line. Jim Richer, a really good center. I'm going to sign Kent Hull, your center from the New Jersey Generals of the USFL. So we're going to build a team that's going to be a champion. And I'm a football guy. It's not like you're signing with somebody who's an accountant or a lawyer or somebody who came out of the media. I'm a football guy. I've been in the trenches my whole life. So in that sense, we're kindred spirits. And it's in both our best interest to win because you have a chance to be one of the great quarterbacks in football history. And and we have a chance to turn a franchise around and you are the guy that's going to do it. So he said, Okay, let me think about it. And he called back about three days later. His agents called back and said, okay, the Bills were going to be in Houston where Jim was living uh, because he had played for the Houston Gamblers. Donald Trump owned his rights, by the way, with the USFL New Jersey Generals, but they were defunct and um, in the rights in the USFL. And uh, so uh, they said, would you come to Houston and negotiate? So I said, okay, great. Um, that became public, obviously, because the agents wanted it to be public to put as much pressure on us in the negotiations as possible. So I flew to Houston, I believe, on the game was on Saturday. I flew in, a, 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 I left on Thursday evening from Buffalo. And at the airport, when I left, were a bunch of school children from a local parochial school who handed me a giant prayer card wishing me well and and praying that we'd sign Jim Kelly. Um, that no, tells no you. No pressure. There is no well, pressure forget on you pressure. at this point as a new GM. That, that was the big assist. He had God on his side. Forget pressure. That tells you what Buff, what Buffalo thinks about the Buffalo Bills and, and, and the signing of Jim Kelly. So off I went. Uh, we negotiated for three days. Uh, we reached agreement. Mr. Wilson did a phenomenal job because he hosted Bill at uh, uh, Jim at the game on Saturday night and uh, and did a phenomenal sales job on him, essentially uh, promised Jim all the things that I had said we were going to do in the first meeting. And uh, and we it was a difficult negotiation, perhaps one of the most difficult I've ever been involved in. But uh, nonetheless, we got it done. And um, we prepared to fly back um, to Buffalo. Mr. Wilson sent a private plane. And as we were getting on the plane, I said to Jim, 
you are going to receive a welcome here, the likes of which you have never seen in your life. You're going to be treated, believe me, like the president of the United States visiting Buffalo. And he said, oh, get out of here. That's, I said, I'm telling you, Jim, that's the case. Prepare yourself for it because that's the case. So we land at the private uh, airport in Buffalo. I think there were something like 26 or 27 television stations there. Uh, we got in a limousine, uh, which was surrounded by police cars. Every police uh, 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 district in, and, and town in western New York wanted to be represented. The motorcade consisted of two cars and about 18 police cars and, and with sirens uh, uh, wailing and lights flashing. We headed down the Skajakwita Freeway into downtown Buffalo. The press conference was far too large to be staged at, uh, at anything but a big hotel. So the Bills took over a ballroom in the, uh, in the Buffalo Hilton Hotel on the waterfront for Jim's opening press conference, his welcome press conference. And uh, as, we, as we went along the freeway, there were bridges over the freeway, pedestrian bridges over the freeway, and every single one of them were filled with people with signs, welcome Jim, the bills are born again, stuff like that. And he looked at me and said, oh my God, you were right. I said, you bet I was right. This is the second coming, man. You're the Messiah. And he, he kind of looked at me ruefully and laughed. And uh, uh, when we pulled up to the, the Hilton, and there, it was a huge crowd in the parking lot that the police had to hold back. And um, uh, the, the press conference began at about 6.30 or quarter to 7, I believe, Eastern time. And the national news, which was then on, uh, on all three networks in Buffalo was preempted to show the Jim Kelly press conference. So uh, that's what I was up to in 1987. And uh, fortunately, the students with the prayer card came through and, and we were able to get Jim Kelly. And, and not soon thereafter, uh, maybe a year or so later, when it became clear that we were uh, going to be on our way toward championship performance, and championship level, Larry Felser wrote in his column, the day that Jim Kelly signed the black cloud that existed over Buffalo so long was lifted and the sun began to shine again. That's pretty, pretty good. So kind of to that end, so you, you've got Jim in the fold, you've got the team pretty well situated. Kind of going into the 87 season, you had to have known labor discourse was on the horizon. How how are you as a general manager brought up to speed on those issues by ownership? How does that work? Well, uh, we had a uh, – Donlin held a league meeting uh, for all general managers. I believe it may have been at the at, – at the, end of the summer in 87. It was before, I think it was before we went to training camp and maybe it had been in the spring of 87. And he explained in general terms that if there was a strike, the league was going to field replacement players and replacement teams. And he made it clear in no uncertain terms that it was our job to sign players to those teams. And, uh, and if, if we didn't do a good job of it, we would be held responsible uh, he outlined some rules and regulations for doing that. For example, no guaranteed contracts, 
no contract with players until they the contact with players, uh, nor no coaching of players until such time as uh, the strike was officially called and the replacement players could officially be signed. Uh, there were some teams in the league who blatantly violated those rules, and he never batted an eye. In fact, he applauded them. When people would uh, call and complain about it, he would just say, tough luck. Uh, why didn't you do it yourself? Um, effectively, effectively, there were no rules. Uh, it was every man for himself. And because of our experience in Kansas City and the bitterness that the strike of 82 caused, which caused our team to fracture, Marvin and I went to Mr. Wilson and said, listen, this happened to us in Kansas City in 82. We knew Mr. Wilson, Marv, myself, our coaching staff, knew that we had the makings of a really good team. That 87 was going to be our year to break out and become a, a championship contender. All of the pieces, or most of the pieces, were in place. Cornelius Bennett wasn't there yet, and Thurman Thomas wasn't there yet, but the other Hall of Famers were. And, and so we knew we were going to be good. And so Marv and I said to Mr. Wilson, we would like to do the following. We would like to do the bare minimum to field the replacement team, meaning spend no money, uh, don't give anybody any bonuses, take what we can get, abide by the rules so that we're, we're not found guilty of doing anything that, that where, where Donlin could, could sanction us. Um, and upset the momentum of our team, and most importantly, not treat the replacement players as though they were the equals of the players who had made our team and who were going to make our team in the, in, in, in the future. And Marvin and I basically said the same thing. Mr. Wilson, the strike will be over. You know that. That's the history of strikes. At some point, it would end, will end. And when our regular players come back, we want them to be, once again, proud to be Buffalo Bills, be proud to be a member of the Buffalo Bills family, which you have generously created, and be together as we go forward. And he said, I agree completely, and if anybody gives you any trouble about that, you just let me know. I'll handle it. So that's what we did, essentially nothing. We didn't break the rules. We didn't practice our team in a vacant lot somewhere. We didn't give people bonuses. We assembled a, uh, first of all, we, we acted as though the strike wasn't going to happen. It wasn't, we didn't make it an issue with the players. Uh, we never discussed it per, uh, publicly uh, or privately for that matter. And I just detailed Bob Ferguson, our great pro personnel director. I said, Bob, in your, in your, in your spare time, put together the best replacement team you can go, do, but don't spend any money and don't spend any effort against it. Um, it means right. nothing. It's just a. It's just a, a, a. This is this is Jack Donlin's idea of a, a, a of a way to break a strike and break the union. Uh, it's not going to. We're not going to allow this to affect our chances for championships going forward. He agreed completely, and so uh, when, uh, ironically enough, um, we had had a great comeback victory in Rich Stadium against the Houston Oilers, who were then a very good team. Uh, came back from 21 down in the fourth quarter to beat them the day previous to the strike. And everybody was on cloud nine. I mean, it, it, we now the fans knew that we really had a very good team. And uh, and so the next morning, 
Uh, I said to Marv, let me meet, meet with the team. You, you don't, or, and the coaches don't need to be involved. I don't want you stigmatized in any way with any association with any of this strike stuff. So he agreed. And, uh, and I spoke to the team. And I said, in essence, fellas, uh, we're forced by the league to do this. Um, these are not the Buffalo Bills. These are replacement players that the league is forcing us um, to put on the field. Uh, they're not going to dress in your locker room. They're not going to wear your numbers. Uh, they're not going to be publicized the way you are. And here's where I guess I took a real gamble um, because I, I certainly was breaking a rule that had been promulgated by the league office and pushed terribly by Donlin because they were trying to get individual players to cross the picket lines. And they were urging, forcing, strong-arming management to try to get players to cross, uh, veteran players. I said, whatever you do, whether you choose to cross or whether you choose to stay out, do together. This is we and us. We're all in this together. When this is over, we're coming back and we're going to win championships. So don't do anything to fracture that. Whatever you do, do together. I'll support you 100%. So they broke up. The picket lines uh, uh, began to form. We brought in the replacement players. We were the worst team in the league, bar none. The only people that were close were the New York Giants because George Young, the great Hall of Fame general manager of the Giants, had taken the same position that we did. Wellington Mara took the same position that Mr. Wilson did that there were far bigger fish to fry than replacement players. And, um, and so uh, we ended up playing each other, actually, in the, last, uh, in the last replacement game, which was— And you'd win. And we did win it, yes. Uh, it, it was in overtime, believe it or not. It was—the uh, only player to cross for, of note for the Giants was uh, Lawrence Taylor— and we were afraid. Mr. Wilson said to me, he'll kill somebody. I said, <laughs> you know, I laughed, but I said, you know, Mr. Wilson, you might be right. <laughs> so we had to go sign a, a guy who had been with us a long while ago, a veteran player. And, and, and we said to him, just hold Lawrence Taylor on every play. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> Lawrence went both ways. He actually played, uh, he actually played tight end, um, but he was out of shape. And so... In the second half, he was never a factor. But we, uh, the game went into overtime after the Giants missed a chip-shot field goal to win the game in regulation, and we kicked a field goal in regulation. Uh, I'm sorry, in overtime to win the game. And in the elevator on the way down uh, to the locker room, I was in there with George Young and Wellington Mara. And I said, Mr. Mara, you were involved in the greatest game ever played in 1958. Giants versus uh, Colts in Yankee Stadium, the game that put the NFL on the map. And now you've been involved in the, in the worst game ever played. And he gave me kind of a rueful smile. And he said, yeah, you got that right. <laughs> but you won that game with literally a kid who had never played football before. Todd Sloppy was like a camera guy who played. It was a high school kid in Buffalo. Todd Sloppy from, he was right? a kicker. Well, he'd been a. I believe he'd been a kicker at Michigan, but he was from Orchard Park, which is where the stadium was located. And uh, 
and yeah, he kicked the winning field goal. And and in the in the locker room after the game, uh, keep in mind that in those days, as Jerry Jones once said, we counted every sock and jock. I mean, there there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a, a, a big margin of a profit here. And and Mr. Wilson's way of doing things, thank God, dated back to the old days of the uh, of the AFL when literally you counted every penny. And so um, jerseys were expensive, but our players were so hopped up about having beaten the Giants that uh, one of the coaches came to me and said the players would like to keep their jerseys. Do you want to let them do that? And I thought to myself, you got 50 players at $100 a jersey. Mr. Wilson will be all over me. I said, no, go ahead. Let them keep it. So they let out a big whoop, and, <laughs> and, and, and they, all, they all still to this day have their jerseys. That's pretty great. So it kind of in setting this up, so, you know, in 82, obviously, you know, the 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 strike was very much about you know this revenue sharing deal that Ed Garvey had come up with 87 is definitively about free agency right yes that's correct without question I, I was just going to say you know Ed had really sort of gotten out over his skis and when the 55 percent you know fell apart uh and and uh players were more aware of all the other sort of uh things that he had done that weren't uh, considered sort of in the best interest of the union, there was a coup, and and Gene, who had then been the the player president uh, of the union, uh, moved over to become the new executive director. Right. So, like to that end, you know, players wanting free agency. You know, some of the other things they wanted were, you know, obviously pension benefits and severance. But this is something that I never know when we're going to get the chance to talk about again. So we'd be remiss if we didn't hit this. But obviously, the union, or not obviously, I mean, the union. One of the other big things they wanted was the elimination of artificial turf. And so, obviously, for you, you know, being in Buffalo, playing on turf in Buffalo, you know, turf's obviously come a long way, you know, since the mid '80s, but. You know, how did turf affect you from a GM perspective in terms of, you know, constructing the bills? And obviously it would it'll impact us later when we get into more stuff with the Colts of just what are the differences in team construction or even in coach selection when you're playing on an artificial surface versus a grass field somewhere? Well, totally different in Buffalo than than uh, than it was in Indianapolis because it's largely weather driven. We had to have artificial turf in Buffalo because of the weather, uh, because if you had a grass field, uh, by the time you would hit November 1st, it would be barren uh, and, it, and it would jockey back and forth between a, uh, a rock pile, which is which is what the old stadium was known as. And it wasn't known for that because of its construction. It was known for that because of the field, which was literally a rock pile in November and December and or a frozen tundra. Uh, there were no uh, heating, uh, functional heating systems under under uh, real grass as there are today in Green Bay, for example. So you had to have artificial turf in order to function. So it was a non-starter from us on a on a negotiating perspective. It was a non-starter for all of the indoor teams. Uh, uh, you know, you couldn't play any other way. Um, I think it was a very smart move on Gene to put it on the table as a sop to a certain segment of the union who, uh, frankly and correctly, didn't want to play on artificial turf. It's much harder 
on the body to play on artificial turf than it is on real grass. Uh, today, the difference is, is, is negligible, I think. But in those days, it was very, very different, very stark difference. Uh, but that was a sop to part of his membership who didn't want it. He knew that he was never going to get that. But what he really wanted was free agency. And when players like Joe Montana crossed the picket line and came in, the strike of 87 was effectively broken. Jack Donlan and Hugh Culverhouse had won. They had broken the union. They were not going to get free agency. The big stars, by and large, even though a small percentage had broken the picket line and come in, uh, and there was no solidarity in the union, and there was never, at least from the standpoint of the union and certain powerful agents who were aligned with them, uh, any chance that free agency would ever come. The union was at its lowest ebb. And so Gene Upshaw, with the advice and counsel of some really sharp agents who were lawyers, among them Tom Condon, who is a sort of a household name to people who follow agents and follow negotiations in football. He represented Peyton, both Manning brothers, among many others. Um, counsel Gene to decertify. Decertify the union. Say, we're going out of business as a union, and we're now going to be a trade association like the American Medical Association. The reason that the NFLPA did it was to gain a bargaining advantage. They had lost the strike just like they lose every strike. And they needed to be able to avail themselves of the law in order to gain that advantage. And that opportunity was available to them if they decertified because the NFL, like all leagues, is a walking antitrust violation. It is 32 competitors conspiring together to set up a system that includes things like the draft, the standard player contract, a waiver system, restrictions on free agency, all of which and each of which are violative of the antitrust laws because they are a restraint on trade. They limit the opportunity of players, workers, to bargain with each club individually and get the benefit of that multiple party negotiation. The only reason the NFL is allowed to continue as is is because of something called the labor exemption. The labor exemption is a phenomenon that has developed over time in the court system and in legislation. It came about in the beginning when labor unions first formed and companies tried to attack the labor unions as themselves antitrust violations. Because after all, these are workers who theoretically are competing with one another, coming together you know, and bargaining in unison uh, with an employer. The courts and federal statutes stated that no, human labor is not something we're trying to regulate under the antitrust laws. And number two, workers versus owners of companies 
are at such a great disadvantage in terms of bargaining power that unless you allow them to collectivize, they will be taken advantage of. So that initial labor exemption exempted labor unions themselves from the antitrust laws. Subsequently, you had situations where a union would be bargaining with a multi-employer bargaining unit, meaning different employers were all going to be controlled by this one collective bargaining agreement. Perfect example, the NFL. And during those negotiations, the union would be asking all these employers to uniformly agree to something like a certain wage or hours or whatever, and they would all collectively agree to that. Well, again, they couldn't have done that on their own, but now the court said because this is something the union wanted in collective bargaining, that will now get the blessing of the labor exemption and not be considered violative of the antitrust law. And then the final step was to say collective bargaining is a highly complex trade-off back and forth of many different things. So the law and the court said as long as something was in a collective bargaining agreement, whether it was something the union wanted or something management wanted, in the in the big mix and the trade-off of all those things, as long as it was part of a collective bargaining agreement, it would have the labor exemption. So that's how under all these CBAs, those the draft, the standard player contract, free agency restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, are all exempt from the antitrust laws. So when the union decertified and put themselves out of business and the workers were no longer represented by a union, all those things became antitrust violations again. And now every player is on his, on his own to negotiate whatever they want. And individual players were then going to go to court, federal court, and sue the NFL under the federal antitrust laws as individual independent contractors with no union. A, 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 a novel, completely different theory that no one, certainly in football, had ever seen before. And all of a sudden, the tables turned dramatically because once the union got into court with this theory, and some led by an extremely credible lawyer named uh, Jim, um, uh, his name will come to me, excuse me, it'll come to me in, in, in just a minute. But uh, uh, the, the, as soon as they got into, uh, into court, the tables turned because antitrust violations, Jim Quinn, by the way, is the, the name of the lawyer. I apologize to him. He's a friend to this day. I apologize. But uh, Jim led the, the charge um, for the union and, and individual players. Once uh, antitrust violations came into play, the, the remedy for antitrust violations is treble damages, three times what the normal damage award would be. 
So if the players got a damage award based on what the NFL sort of uh, built them out of by violating the antitrust laws of $500 million, it was trebled by law to $1 billion five. Treble damages, it got the owner's attention. Yeah, and, and again, the reason that that worked was because the league could only operate and, and do the things a league needs to do by virtue of the labor exemption that the union possessed. So when the union went out of business, the labor exemption disappears, and the NFL is a walking antitrust violation. So was your kind of sense from from the sort of a GM perspective, this was probably going to be the last time there was going to be a CBA that didn't have some form of free agency? Or did you think that they the owners could keep staving this off? Or was this kind of the easily the last time we were going to be able to do this? I wasn't smart enough or um, experienced enough at that point to have an opinion but the league, in an effort to win the antitrust case, put together something called Plan B, which essentially said that you had to free up six players on your team every year who are out of contract, and uh, you could retain three of those six with what amounted to a franchise tag. It was not called that, but that's what it amounted to. It's what we know today as the franchise tag. We, we went to a league meeting where they were going to explain this to uh, all, of the, uh, all of the general managers. This was, uh, I think Tech Schramm had a lot to do with this. Uh, certainly Donlin did. Uh, and they explained it. And... Most people sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, we've been through the replacement season. This is better than replacement players. I was concerned because at that point I thought that we were paying the wrong players because obviously the six that you made free or the three that you made free were guys that weren't critical guys. But since it was a free market, they were going to get huge increases in salaries. In addition, right. uh, once those guys got big increases, the Jim Kellys and Bruce Smiths of the world were going to look for gigantic increases. And so, in effect, right. like, what we, are we, doing? we were paying the wrong... Yes, we were paying the wrong players. So I, I went up and introduced myself to the league's outside counsel, Paul Tagliabue. And he was very cordial. And I said, aren't we paying the wrong players and advanced the theory that, I, that I've just enunciated? And he said, I think there's some merit to that. But what this is designed to do is to stave off a verdict in the antitrust case and hopefully negotiate a better system of free agency. But make no mistake, free agency in some form or other, is here to stay. The question is, uh, in what context and what form? Right. Uh, that was my first conversation with him. 
I walked away and I said to myself, you know, that's a pretty sharp guy. <laughs> a heck of a lot smarter than me. And, and, uh, and so plan B was put into effect. Uh, it never stood the test of court. Uh, it died a borning as a, as a, as a byproduct of the negotiations for collective bargaining agreement, which took place from 89 to 93. Uh, but it was a, uh, it was a period of time, an interregnum between no free agency under any circumstances and, Yes, there will be some form of free agency. It was the breaking of the dam, if you will. It was only a little fissure in the dam, just a little ripple in the stream. But from it came the system that we now have today. And uh, while the replacement players was a clearly a black eye and a, and a black period in National Football League history, Plan B in its own way, was the precursor for better days to come because the leadership transitioned from Pete Rosell to Paul Tagliabu. The power over labor matters transitioned from Jack Donlan and Hugh Culverhouse to Paul Tagliabu. And Gene Upshaw met an adversary that he came to respect and then became a close friend of, and together they collaborated to bring on all of the riches and all of the, all of the uh, outstanding uh, uh, benefits and, and, and position that the NFL holds today. Very true. So in, in looking back at 87, I mean, you, you definitely we touched on this earlier, but I mean, you had a team that was 100% on the cusp of being a playoff team or even breaking out. I mean, in retrospect, you know, the Colts won the division at nine and six. You know, you guys would lose to the Colts as one of your uh, replacement games. You know, it took real guts to kind of say, hey, we're going to take a long term view of this and we're going to build kind of what you refer to as the real bills. But at the time, did you were you nervous that if you didn't make the playoffs that year, that you know you guys were going to be in trouble? This this could be a repeat of Kansas City all over again. Because I mean, that's that's the part you know as we were going through this and going through the research that I kind of had in the back of my throat is you've just gone through this situation in Kansas City five years earlier, and now in '87 you got a team that's ready to break out. But it took real stick to from ownership and support in that regard to kind of navigate these waters. Obviously it paid off in the end, but at the time, how nervous were you, you know, kind of going into this? Well, Marvin and I, I have to say Marvin and I were, were steadfast in our belief that it was the right thing to do. We could never have achieved it without the support of Mr. Wilson. Never. Um, but in his a far-sighted view. He understood that a we had the makings of a really good team, and b uh, we could not shred it the way the USFL had shredded the previous version of the Bills. Don't forget, Jim Kelly signed uh, with the USFL after having been drafted number one by the Buffalo Bills. He was actually in the Bills' office, ready to sign his contract when the USFL called and said, leave, we'll give you twice as much. Um, Joe Cribbs 
who was the driving force between a, uh, uh, behind a pretty good Bills team, left to go to Birmingham. Mr. Wilson saw his team riven by internal strife. So he recognized that, the, that, that what we were proposing was the right tack to take. And he was very supportive through it all. He really was. And he was a guy who, uh, you know, his phone calls on Monday morning after a loss uh, were not pleasant in a lot of cases. But uh, right. the, 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 during the strike and, and its aftermath and the replacement season and its aftermath, he was as good as gold. He was tremendous, tremendously supportive. We could not have done it without him. And then what was the impact? Because you guys did end up through the process having four players, you know, cross back. Because, I mean, as this, as the strike would play out, as we talked about earlier with Joe Montana Montana and star players like Steve Largent and Howie Long crossing the picket lines and then famously in Dallas, you know, you had Tony Dorsett. You, you did have four guys cross. I mean, were there any lasting impacts on players like Leon Seals or Derwood Rock, Rocamore or anything like that in terms of, you know, their place in the locker room moving forward or, you know, how that impacted the team or did guys sort of understand? Leon was the only player that, that really was a, a major contributor for us. And, um, and I never sensed any uh, uh, bitterness toward him. I think they, they all realized that he needed the money very badly. In Durward's case, he needed the money very badly. So the other guys, I think, realized that. And we had great veteran leadership from Fred Smurlis and Jim Hazlitt. Incredible leadership from them. Uh, they were the player representatives. And, and they they saw to it um, that we stayed together. There's a funny story that, that uh, revolves around the giant game. NFL Management Council, Functionaries, you know, good guys, lawyers called me and said, listen, we hear the Giants are coming in. That game, the Giants had been the world championship champions the previous year. This was going to be the first sellout, 80,000 people in Rich Stadium in, in a long, long time. Uh, because the Giants had a big following from Albany, sort of north to Rochester. And then the Bills had a big following from Rochester West. Um, so... Uh, it, it was going to be a complete, it sold out in June. We didn't have a ticket left on, on June 1st when they went on sale. Uh, so it's a big payday, by the way, for Mr. Wilson to lose. Uh, but um, the league office uh, called, management council called, and he said, we hear the Giants are coming in. And your team had to come in on Wednesday in order for you to um, have them play on Sunday. That was the rule that Donlan had established. So, um uh, I said, well, okay, I'll let our guys know. Um, keep me posted as to what happens. And so some of the guys on my staff said, hey, this is a setup. They're trying to get us to bring our guys in and force the Giants in. I said, uh, "That's I hadn't thought about that. That's a good thought. Because Donlin's whole approach was to get players to cross the picket lines. That that was the his entire approach. So... I said, I got to go talk to our guys anyway. So Freddie and Jim, uh, J Freddie wasn't married. Jim's wife was not in town yet. They were living in a house nearby that looked like, um, because of lack of furniture and stuff strewn all over the place, looked like a set from a horror, horror film. Uh, Freddie and Jim and I always <laughs> laugh about it to this day. 
I don't think I sat on a chair. I think I sat on a crate of some kind. Um, but I explained to them uh, what was going on. So they said, okay, if the Giants come in, we'll come in because it's that big a game and we want to show the world that, that we're good. So I said, okay, I got to find a way for you to get everybody together. They said, when will you know? So I said, I'll probably know by 1 o'clock on Wednesday. They said, okay, we'll have everybody at the Big Tree Tavern. The Big Tree Tavern was a place where the players hung out, which was literally about a half a mile from the stadium. The parking lot was next adjacent to it. So I said, okay, give me the number in the Big Tree. It was a pay phone. No cell phones in those days. I said, I'll call. One if by land, two if by sea, right? If the Giants come in, we're coming in. So I called management council. I said, the Giants come in, our guys will come in. So I said, um, I'll call you, told the gentleman at the management council, I'll call you at at 1 o'clock and you can let me know. I'll have our guys ready. So he said, okay. So I called him at 1 o'clock. He said, I don't know anything yet. Call me back in 10 minutes. I called him back in 10 minutes. Meanwhile, I'm getting calls from the guys. What's happening? I'll call you back. This goes on for about 25 more minutes. Finally, I get exasperated. And I said, God darn it. It was a little more emphatic than that or profane than that. Uh, Don't you know what the heck the Giants are doing? And the gentleman on the other end of the phone said to me, no, I don't. We're on Park Avenue. There's a damn river and a bridge between us. They're in New Jersey. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to send our guys home. And he said, well, you do what you want. So uh, I called over and I said, wait 15 minutes, but it doesn't look like they're coming in. So to his credit, that gentleman called me back and he said, the Giants didn't come in. That's the good news. The bad news is Lawrence Taylor came in. I said, oh, my God. So I called over to our guys and said, don't worry about it. They're not coming in. Stay out. Um, Unless they all wanted to come in, which they didn't. They were going to stay out for the duration. Uh, And then uh, I called Mr. Wilson and I said, well, the Giants didn't come in. That's the good news. He said, what's the bad news? And I said, well... (laughs) Lawrence Taylor came in and he said, oh, my God, he'll kill someone. (laughs) Which, frankly, I believe to be true as well. (laughs) But uh, fortunately, we 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 got out of it. Okay, survived. No, uh, no injuries or deaths on the field, which is a good thing. Well, cool. So I, I think, you know, no sort of discussion of 87 sort of can happen without sort of, you know, the, the strike, as we've talked about, would come to an end with, you know, the, the owners getting this victory by getting players to cross the picket line. Um, and then, you know, free agency would be shelved again for the future. But an interesting thing happened with the Bills sort of, you know, as you guys came back to football, you know, on Halloween of 1987, you were involved in a pretty big trade, you know, that included a Hall of Fame running back in Eric Dickerson, that you would get the rights to Cornelius Bennett. I, I, I'd be remiss because I don't know when we'll get to, to touch on it again if we didn't talk a little bit about the, the three-team trade sort of right in the middle of 87 after coming back from the replacement player. Um, yes, um, momentous occasion for, for actually for all three teams. Um, Paul Tagliabue, when he became commissioner, um, named 
Jim Ursay and I to the management council. So we had worked together for a period of time and knew each other and, uh, and were friends because he was a general manager as well. His father owned the team. He was a general manager, but he'd worked his way up from, from being a ball boy in training camp when he was in high school. He was a football man. So we knew each other and, and liked each other. And, um, so Bob Ferguson, our pro personnel director came into me, um, I believe it was on Tuesday and said, the Colts are going to trade the rights to Cornelius Bennett. He was demanding too much money. He was the first or second player picked in the draft. I think he was the first, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and they just weren't apparently weren't going to sign him. I said, Bob, wow, that that sounds strange to me. Um, they did the same thing with John Elway. I don't think they Jim would allow that to happen again. And he said, I'm telling you, I'm hearing it. So I said, Well, okay, research it a little bit more, and uh, and and if you get some more data, let me know, and I'll call Jim. So he did, and I called Jim. And I said, uh, are, are you, we're hearing you're going to trade Bennett. And he said, that's true. And if you, if you want to get in, it's two ones to open, meaning two first round draft choices, one this year, one the following year, just to get into the bidding. So I said, okay, give me about 40 minutes and I'll call you back. Okay. And he said, yeah, sure. Fine. So. I called Mr. I first went in and told Coach Levy he was 100% in favor of getting Cornelius. And I called Mr. Wilson. And I said, Cornelius Bennett's available. And he said, you guys thought he was the best player in the draft, right? I said, yes. Not only that, he's the last piece in our championship puzzle because he's the other rusher who will take pressure off Bruce Smith. Now nobody's going to be able to, to handle our, our pass pressure. So... I said, this is going to be a gigantic contract, a million or more. Who knows? I mean, I don't know what it's going to cost, but let's start there. And he said, two ones? I said, yes, and it'll go higher than that. He said, "Um, all right, let me talk to Marv. He put Marv on the phone. Marv reiterated what I had said, handed me back the phone. Mr. Wilson said, go ahead, keep me posted. Um, So, again, gutsy move on his part. For a man who had a reputation of, 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 of counting every every nickel, uh, he wasn't afraid to spend it when it came time to uh, to get a superstar. So Jim and I began negotiating. That was a Thursday. And he was negotiating uh, for the, uh, the contract of the running back from the Rams, uh, whose name <laughs> is escaping me now. Uh, Hall of Fame running back Eric um, Eric Dickerson Dickerson excuse me that guy yeah kind of ran it in an upright kind of way yeah yeah he he was okay they wanted Dickerson we wanted Bennett and the Rams it turned out over the space of two days wanted uh three ones and three twos and three players in context, you know, in, 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 in total. 
Jim was the go-between. I'm, I'm convinced that it would not have gotten done except for the goodwill of, and patience of Jim Irsay. Um, just myself negotiating with John Shaw, even though he too was a friend and a former member of the Management Council, um, I don't think we would have gotten it done. Anyway, we negotiated back and forth. And we finally got to about midnight on Friday night. And um, and Jim called me and he said, we'd, we'd agreed on two ones and Greg Bell, a running back, to go to the Rams, who we did not, we, we, we didn't want to keep. And, um, and he said, the Rams have to have a two. The Rams were getting all of the booty. The Colts were getting Dickerson. We were getting Bennett. They were getting all of the, the change, if you will. And um, I said, okay, let me, let, me, let me talk to Marv. So Mr. Wilson had given me the go-ahead. He said, close the deal, whatever you have to do. Don't give him another one, but if you, if you have to give him something else to close the deal, go ahead and do it. We've come this far. I think he said he was going out to dinner or something like that. He was great. It was, it was you know, it's just, I, I think it, the fact that we were acquiring such a great player, I had him energized. So I went into Marv and I said, Marv, listen, um, they want a two in addition. And he said, no, no, that's too much. That's too much. Two ones and Greg Bell is more than enough. I, I did, they're just being greedy. And I said, well, that may be true, but, um, you know, that it's just a fact of life. That's what we're going to have to pay. And so he said, no, no, I don't want to do it. I think it's too much. And I said, well, okay, would you think about it, please? So his his office and mine were at opposite ends of a long hallway. So I walked down to my office and Bob Ferguson was in there and a couple other people from the administrative staff, Bill Munson, our assistant GM, because they were going to have to effectuate the paperwork, obviously. Um, so it's now, I, I think, either close to or past midnight. And, um, and Marv came back in and he said, I really do think it's too much. I really do. I, I think it's just it, it, paying that much of a price. It, it just doesn't sit well with me. And I said, Coach, look at it this way. Do you want to win the trade or do you want to win the Super Bowl? And he stopped and he said, well, when you put it that way, I can be convinced, but don't come, don't let them come back and ask for anything more. This is it. I'm not going any further than this. It's where we draw the line. (laughs) So I said, okay. So I called Jimmy back and I said, Jimmy, if I give you the two, is the deal closed? And he said, it is. So I said, okay, you got it. Let's close the deal. And we got Cornelius Bennett. And, of course, the history of the Buffalo Bills uh, um, changed dramatically. So did that of the Colts. And ironically enough, when I became uh, general manager and later president of the Colts, um, I would I, I frequently would refer to the trade as the Cornelius Bennett trade. And I would be uh, reminded in, in, not by Jim Ursay, but by others in, in strong fashion. It was not the Bennett trade. 
it was the Dickerson trade. <laughs> so everybody looks at it. Everybody looks at it through different uh, different lenses. But um, that was the uh, that and the drafting of Thurman Thomas the following year were, were the final pieces in the in the Bills' great Super Bowl run. Hey, now, Scott, I have to interject one thought here because uh, uh, you talked about being remiss uh, if you didn't. We didn't mention certain things and momentous occasions. Uh, this, there was a momentous occasion in my life out of all this because this is how I met Bill Polian at this point in time. I represented Mark Kelso, who uh, had been drafted by the Eagles but wound up with the Bills, and it was uh, over the negotiating table that Bill and I uh, established our relationship, which we maintained throughout the years, right up to the time when I started representing him. Uh, Mark was a longtime fixture of uh, the Bills, and Bill, I remember you saying to me, you know, you know, he's not big, he's not fast, he's, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but he's the kind of guy that you want to keep around as a player. When he finishes as a player, you want him as a coach. And when he finishes as a coach, you want him as a talisman. I don't know if you remember saying that to me or not. But I do. Uh, he, I do. But he, but he wound up, uh, you know, playing out his whole career there, uh, playing on all the Super Bowl teams, becoming famous for that pro cap that he wore on the top of his head because of the concussion problem where his teammates referred to him as the great gazoo after the character from the Flintstones. Uh, and then stuck with the Bills, and, and just until recently, after all this time, with the color commentator uh, on their games. But but I love Mark Kelso for many reasons, one of which is bringing me together with Phil Polian. Look at that. And it comes full circle. All right. Well, I'm going to pull, just as we like to do at the end of the podcast, a legitimate audible today. We had a, we had a hard audible at the end, kind of on COVID stuff. I think let's switch it up. I, I feel like we talk about the 87 Bills being a team on the cusp. And as we sit here, you know, in early April pre-draft, uh, it's always hard to do this. But uh, legitimate audible time. Who does Bill Polian think is a team on the cusp? Uh, of being a Bills kind of team in the uh, 2020 NFL season. Who do we need to have our eyes on going into next year this early in the process? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, I've been so focused on the draft. I haven't looked at uh, at other teams in general. Who do I think is a comer? Uh, I think Philadelphia very definitely. Now they won a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Um, the Colts very definitely because they've got Philip Rivers. They've got to finish the uh, the job in in the draft. Um, Houston's lost a lot, but they're really well coached by Bill O'Brien and company, and I think they're they're not going to go away. I think they'll be a legitimate contender. I'm not so sure about Tennessee uh, because they're so predicated on the run game. And if anything happens to their lead back, uh, Derrick Henry, then that hurts their chances. Um, I'm not convinced yet on the Jets, although I could be. I think there are a lot of, a lot of solid movement there. The Giants have a way to go, although I like the quarterback and obviously everybody likes Saquon. Um, I think Chicago's a question mark. You know what I'm hoping mark. for you to say. Pardon me? 
Yeah. You know what I'm hoping for. I know. I'm staying in Are that we gonna division. going to say it? Uh, I like Philadelphia. <laughs> the Giants have a ways to go. I think if the Redskins quarterback becomes what they hope he becomes, then with the addition of the rusher, which everybody expects they'll, they'll take, uh, to their defense, they might, uh, they, no question, they'll ascend under Ron Rivera. The question is how far. I think the quarterback is the answer to that question. Scott, you want the, you want the ghost of Hugh Culverhouse, right? To, to know if uh, he's going to be dancing in heaven uh, after what's happened. Is that what you were waiting for? No, no, no. I was waiting for the little Redskins suck. You know, I was hoping. Oh, he wanted his hometown team. I, yeah. I was going Homer Bowl. Whenever we do these lead-up questions, because I mean, we could have gone. You know, you know, in '87 in that draft, you had Vinny Testaverde go one. You had the quarterback go one, pass rusher go two, which seems to be the trend. You wonder if this is going to be a similar kind of year, which it seems like it probably would be. But uh, we we shall see soon enough. The Bucks are right. a, on that. I think are a short-term prospect with Brady. Uh, you know, he's not going to play. They could be good. More than, yeah, there's more than a couple of years. So I don't know that that's they have a Bills like run in them, but but we'll see. Very cool. All right, guys. Well, that is our show for today on the replacement players in the 1987 uh, labor stoppage. Again, if you have any questions for us on the pod, feel free to reach out on social media. Uh, we will be sure to get to it in future episodes. Uh, any ideas, any thoughts, feel free to send them our way. And thank you guys for listening. And as always, please stay safe. And uh, our thoughts are with those uh, greatly affected by what's going on and hopefully this was a fun distraction for you guys any last words boys sure i echo what you said and i just wanted to mention that my favorite replacement player was keanu reeves <laughs> hey. stay safe everyone and and our prayers and good wishes to everyone who's had uh, someone afflicted by this uh, this awful scourge that's uh uh, taking over our country. Absolutely. And we are all in this together. So be well. Very cool. Uh, till next time, that is a wrap on the Inside Football Podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.